0: you're listening to the anomalous podcast network multiple voices one phenomenon Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome back to the channel. Um, Before we bring on my guest, I just want to say thank you to everybody that's here watching this live. Anyone on YouTube that watches it afterwards and anybody on the Anomalous Podcast Network. Thank you so much. Also, I just wanted to suggest to anybody that hasn't seen it already uh, to go and check out out Tim McMillan's article over on the um, debrief.org. A bombshell article today. I highly recommend everybody going to read it. Um, for everybody that is watching this live, if you could please keep things respectful and clean in the live chat, that would be much appreciated. There's no need for any abuse or any negativity. I mean, you know what I'm trying to say. I'd really appreciate that. If you have any questions for Rick today, please leave them in capital letters. Then I get to see them. or I've got more chance of seeing them. Um, and all questions, we'll, we'll try and ask them if they're relevant to the conversation point that we're talking about. If not, they will be left till the end of the interview. I think that's it for now, guys, so uh, please let me welcome our guest, Rick Doty. Rick, how's it going?
1: Good, Vinny. Glad to Thank be here. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate very, you taking the time.
1: Welcome. You're very welcome.
0: So I think before we get like into the main main interview, Rick, if you could just give us a brief background on on your yourself, your career, that would be a great start. Thank you.
1: Well, I'm Richard Doty. I worked for the United States Intelligence Service from 1978 to 1988. I was, uh, worked for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations as a counterintelligence officer. Uh, I worked uh, at various locations, uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, which is in, near Albuquerque, New Mexico. And then I worked at the Area 51, both at the, uh, within the Nellis Test and Training Range. Uh, there's two bases out there. One is Groom Lake Air Force Base and the other is Tonopah Air Force Base. I worked at both of those. I had access to highly classified information per, per, <clears throat> pertaining to UFOs and the United States government's uh, program uh, investigating the, the phenomena of uh, UFOs. We call them UFOs back in those days, not UAPs. And there's other terminologies I'm sure we'll discuss later uh, regarding that particular program. Um, I worked right up until 1988 and I got out. And I worked for a number of different, uh, uh, companies, uh, one being the Institute for advanced studies at Austin It's Dr. Putoff's organization. I worked there for 12 years. And after that, I, uh, I worked as a private consultant on movie sets. I've been doing that for about uh, 10 years. Uh, I've also have, uh, uh, a number of, uh, YouTube videos and so forth that I've done over the years. That's that's my background. Before before I got in U.S. intelligence, I was in college. Um, and before that, I was in a regular Air Force. I served four years in the United States Air Force, got out, went to college and I came back in working for United States intelligence.
0: Lovely. That's Thank pretty much so in much. a nutshell. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and so at what point did the UFO top topic or subject come into your career? Was it just suddenly on your desk one day?
1: No, actually, yeah, actually, that's exactly how it happened. Um, there was an incident that happened at Kirtland Air Force Base in 1979, early 1979, uh, where a, uh, a security guard had witnessed a uh, landing of a craft out in a restricted area on the base. At that point, I wasn't, I wasn't briefed into any special programs. And these special programs are called special access programs or SAP. Uh, When I started investigating it, uh, I realized that uh, it probably involved something that I hadn't been briefed into or that the government knew and I didn't know. So I asked my supervisor, I briefed him on what I was investigating. uh, Then he uh, sent me over to a special location on the base whereby I got a, a special briefing a special access program uh, briefing on the subject of UFOs and and the United States government's involvement with UFOs. And that briefing occurred uh, in uh, 1979. It was about a two and a half hour briefing. It was by an Air Force Colonel. I was shown a, uh, I, I wasn't the only one in the room. There uh, some other people in the room, I think 10 or 12 other people that were being briefed in the same program I was. Uh, We were shown a video, a United States government video or a a movie. We didn't have videos, a a movie, a 16 millimeter projector movie, uh, which included uh, uh, part of a recovery uh, operation that occurred uh, near Roswell in 1947. Uh, And then we were briefed on what the United States government has been doing from 1947 on. And that's when I realized that we uh, had a captured UFO in 1947. We found another one in 1949. We had a live alien uh, from 1947 to 1952 when he died. And I was also briefed in other uh, crashes that that occurred after that. So I was briefed into the program, which had assisted me in the investigation of the incident that that had happened on the Kirtland Air Force Base in an area called Coyote Canyon. And that's uh, that's my beginning.
0: Excellent. I mean, you've already said there about crashes and alien bodies. I mean, that must be like highly classified information. So how is it that you're able to freely talk about it so easily?
1: It was at that point, back in those days. um, And this is set in 1979. uh, It was classified. It was highly classified back then. Uh, But over the years, that information's leaked. Uh, uh, almost uh, not everything, but uh, a lot of information that the government had tied up in a special access program has been leaked or been spoken about. And then I had a non-disclosure statement uh, uh, agreement with the uh, government when I got out in 1988, but that expired. Now, there are certain things that I won't talk about, but the mere fact that we had uh, two captured uh, UFOs back in those days that I knew about, that I was briefed into. And one live alien that uh, we found at a crash site near Corona, New Mexico, or or people call it the Roswell crash, actually the crash, the actual craft crashed near Corona, New Mexico, which is north, about 70 miles north of Roswell. And then the second craft we found out west of there, near Horse Mason, New Mexico in 1949. Um, all that information has been released, uh, the Roswell, uh, uh, the number of books uh, regarding the Roswell incident, but few people get, have, have it all right. I mean, Stan Friedman had it right, and some other people have had it right. Uh, there, and then there's some books out there that have it completely wrong. But I was briefed into the official program. I know what officially happened, and I'll just uh, accept what the government told me what happened.
0: Fair enough. Yep. Can't can't argue with that. Um, Now it said that OSI spied on civilian UFO researchers, even breaking and entering homes and feeding them disinformation. Can you tell us about that and why they felt the need to go to such lengths? Were were they getting close to the truth? What was the reasons behind all that?
1: Well, the United States government has such a thing as a counterintelligence network around uh, vital installations uh, and believe it or not, the the, the British MOD uh, MI Five and MI Six has exact same program as we do. In fact, uh, I sat in a room uh, many many years ago with uh, MOD people uh, who, uh, and and I'm sure most of you know that the, the Minister of Defense has a counterintelligence a, a part. Uh, they, they have it, and 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 the and the object of that is to protect the installations, just like we we have to protect our military installations in the United States. And one, way, one of the way we, ways we do it is we set up a counterintelligence network outside the base. And that protects us against foreign intrusions, foreign spies. Now, remember back in those days, we got a Cold War going on. We had Soviets uh, trying to spy on us. Of course, we were trying to spy on them too. So we set up a counterintelligence network around the base, and 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 that involves uh, finding out what the what everybody's doing and what everybody's collecting. And a side note on this is the UFO community. We want to know what the UFO community was doing. We want to know know what information they had, and whether they had been penetrated by Soviet or other hostile intelligence agencies, such as the Chinese or East German, and so forth. So in order to do that, we would have to penetrate uh, those agencies and keep an eye on what and what they were doing and what they were, were, were gathering. Now, I've never been involved with any in, uh, operations that uh, uh, threatened uh, UFO researchers. Uh, all we did was keep track of what they knew. We never tried to influence them. At least I never did. But we had to keep track of what they, what they were doing and, and what they knew. And, and, and an example of this is Bill Moore. Uh, I mean, most people following the uh, phenomena, UFO phenomena back in the uh, late 70s and 80s know Bill Moore. He wrote, he wrote the first book on Roswell, him and, and Charles Berlitz. Uh, I think it was a very, very good book. Uh, when a, one of the, the few things that people don't know uh, is that there's a lot of information about Roswell that Bill had had found out about that wasn't in the book and there's reasons why it was never uh, w- never made it made it into the book but b- besides that we we recruited uh Bill Moore because he was a member of uh, MUFON Apro cause and uh he kept, he kept track of what they knew and he told us what they knew but at no time did we ever influence uh, I never broken in any uh, U- MUFON uh, uh, members' houses. Uh, I know. I know what that's. I know why you said that, and we'll talk about Paul Benowitz in a in a little bit. But um, so we just kept track of it. Now Bill Moore had other other uh, connections with us, and that dealt with counterespionage because he had a he had information uh, pertaining to, and he had it contacts uh, within the Soviet Union. And so that's that's a dis- different uh, program, so to speak. But uh, we never broke into any, I didn't, OSI never broke into any uh, researchers, MUFON or APRO or causes, uh, residences and, and, and stole information. We never bullied them. We never threatened them. Uh, that's all made up in, in, in the press.
0: Okay. Yeah, no problem. So, I mean, let's talk about Paul Benowitz because Unfortunately, people do associate the disinformation and in your um, interactions with him to, to be an influence on what happened to him. So can you break that down and, and sort of lay out to us how, how it really went down or, or your side of things?
1: Well, Paul Benowitz, uh, was a, uh, he owned a, a, uh, a company right, right outside the base of Kirtland Air Force Base. Uh, it was called Sci- Thunder Scientific Laboratories. He made uh, environmental sensors for uh, U.S. submarines. So he had a industrial security clearance. He had uh, and he, he made sensitive things for the government of the United States government, not just the sensors for the submarines, but uh, other things for the United States Navy. He lived right outside the base, right outside uh, one of the largest nuclear weapon storage areas in the free world. And he started seeing objects flying around the base, Kirtland Air Force Base. So he was photographing those objects. He also set up uh, uh, scientific uh, collection uh, devices. Now, Paul Benoist was a physicist, he was a scientist. And eventually he thought there was a threat to the base. So he went to uh, the the chief of security for Manzano base, which was where the nuclear weapons uh, were stored the uh the person he contacted who was a lieutenant, air force lieutenant colonel ernie edwards and he told ernie edwards about what he was seeing uh, near the base well uh me being the counterintelligence officer for the base uh, ernie edwards and i knew him very well he attended most of our security meetings he immediately called me and said listen uh, rick i need you to come down to the office i have something very very important to tell tell you so I did, I went down there and he briefed me on Paul Benowitz, what Paul Benowitz told him. We immediately started an investigation because there, uh, there was a uh, indication of a threat to the base. Uh, Paul saw these things flying around. We didn't know what they were. I mean, at least I hadn't been briefed into that program. So we, uh, myself and another uh, person went out to Paul Benowitz's uh, uh, office out uh, at uh, Thunder Scientific uh, uh, Laboratories. I introduced myself as a counterintelligence officer. I didn't hide anything. I said, you you provided information to uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Ernie Edwards, and we're interested in what you, you had. Well, Paul opened up. Paul uh, completely uh, uh, opened up about what he was doing, what he saw, what he photographed, showed us the photographs, uh, thought there was a threat. Uh, Paul had served in the United States Navy. He was a patriotic American. He had a a scientific laboratory that provided very sensitive electronic devices to the United States Navy. Uh, So he was concerned, he was was really concerned. Um, Now, a side note about Paul, Paul had been a member of APRO, since 1960. Paul was a strong believer in UFOs, alien contacts. So he already knew this. He already knew about aliens. He, after a couple of meetings with Paul, he, he connected what he was seeing with ETs, or extraterrestrials. So that's how that connection occurred. Now, what Paul was actually filming, and this is not classified anymore, were the uh, United States Air Force's drone program. We started a drone program the Air Force did back in the late uh, 70s and early 80s. And the way that the uh, drones were uh, tested back in those days was there would be an airplane flying, a mother mother ship, so to speak. And these uh, drones would fly out of the airplane, the Air Force plane, and being controlled by operators within inside that plane, that close proximity. And so what Paul was taking pictures of were these drones flying around this airplane, an Air Force plane, and and, and Paul immediately thought that there were UFOs flying around a, 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 an Air Force plane. We never told Paul initially. We didn't tell him initially. Eventually we did, but not initially. We didn't tell him that was an Air Force project. At that time, that drone program was highly classified, highly classified. So we didn't tell him that. Now, a few other things Paul uh, delved into uh, was that uh, we had a uh, National Security Agency site on the base. And that uh, site was highly classified. The fact that it was there was classified. It's not classified anymore. Not anything I'm telling you now is not classified. Uh, Paul was photographing strange occurrences coming from that national security agency to their NSA site. And he also collected signal or intelligent, uh, signal uh, frequencies coming from there. And what Paul uh, accidentally, I think uh, got himself into or tapped into was a highly class, another highly classified program where we were firing a laser up in the sky and blinding Soviet satellites as they were going over the area of the base. And uh, it's not classified anymore, uh, but, but at that time, obvious it was. So putting all those things together, we had to convince Paul. We didn't want to release the fact that he tapped into a two highly classified programs. So I suggested to Paul that maybe we, what he was seeing were real UFOs alien spaceships. And, and I, it didn't take much to convince him otherwise because he already believed it. That's how uh, the disinformation started with Paul. I didn't have to fool him. I didn't have to present him with anything. I just had to put that suggestion in his mind, me and others. There were other people involved in this. And uh, and Paul ran with it. And I we told Paul, listen, this is classified, Paul. You can't tell anybody. Well, well, he didn't, with exception with exception of a few people such as uh, Alan Heinig, uh, he, who was involved in this program, and some others. But uh, that's how the Paul Benowitz uh, uh, project occurred.
0: No, I appreciate you giving us the, giving us that. And just before we move on, the two programs, the classified programs that you mentioned, the laser and the drone. Do you happen to know the code names for either of those projects?
1: Uh, the, uh, drone program, um, was Amber something. And I, I don't, I don't remember the NSA program, the NSA, uh, uh, project. Uh, it was an NSA code name for it, but, uh, well, at the time I didn't know what it was. I had to get briefed into the program with NSA. And that of course presented a lot of problems because when we, when we brief NSA, uh, security. Uh, they immediately began their own investigation. unbeknownst to us, they had a parallel investigation going on as we did. Now our investigation involved the FBI, because um, we the FBI is responsible for any type of uh, espionage occurring in the United States. So we had to bring the FBI in. And the NSA didn't. NSA had a, a purely uh, secretive uh, investigation program. And so uh, I eventually got briefed into it, but it took some time to do that.
0: No, that's fair enough. Um, now, I mean, I suppose you didn't know what the outcome would be when it came to Paul Benowitz, but I mean, I suppose at the end of it, did you feel any kind of guilt or regret or, or of even being a part in, in what happened to him? Like, how, how did it make you feel?
1: Well, the Paul Benowitz case, uh, it was his project was called Seven Lambs. Seven lambs, that was the investigation of Paul Inowitz, uh, And that's been released uh, before. Um, there, are the, there, there are a lot of other things that occurred regarding this project and this investigation that just that. Uh, Paul Inowitz was a pilot. Uh, he flew uh, uh, his own Cessna, a single engine uh, Cessna 182. And he flew around taking pictures. Well, Paul actually photographed some real UFOs, which uh, he he came back and showed us. He had his own la- uh, photo lab, so he developed his own photos and showed us these things. Um, Paul also w- was given a, a, a monitor, a, a computer monitor by Alan Hynek, unbeknownst to us. And that computer monitor was uh strange in itself because back in those days in the 1980s, Commodore made uh, a computer, a, a small a computer, but didn't make anything in color. Well, somehow Paul got his, he got color. He was taking screenshots with his camera of, of colored photographs on his computer. We don't know how he did that. In fact, we eventually uh, took the, took it, seized this, his, his uh, computer monitor and uh, try to figure out how that worked. Uh, Paul thought all along that he had contact with ETs, that he was getting strange uh, signals, uh, strange writings, alphab- uh, he calls it the alien alphabet. Um, and he was taking camera shots. I shouldn't say screenshots, but he camera shots of them. And so we, we had that de- we we had a deal with that, trying to figure out what he was doing, how he was uh, seeing these things, uh, and whether, in fact, maybe he really was in contact with ETs. And then on the other side of this uh, was the other complex investigation involving one of his employees, who actually had contacts with a uh, a foreign government. So we had an espionage investigation going on. So all those things dealt into the Paul Benowitz story, which the, the investigation lasted seven years, uh, eventually ended. Uh, I maintained friendship with Paul all during this time period. I eventually told Paul, you know, what you were seeing was something, you know, what what you initially were seeing. The photographs you were seeing came from uh, a drone program and another highly classified. Program. Well, he wouldn't believe me. He goes, no, you don't have to tell me. I know they're UFOs. He, he would never believe anything other than what he, uh, regarding the UFOs. Um, now, you, you spoke earlier about breaking into people's houses. Paul Benowitz, uh, during this investigation, gave us carte blanche um, permission to enter his residence anytime we needed to. He gave us his key. He gave us a written document saying, yeah, you can go in anytime you want to. We did. We did do that. In initial phases of our investigation, we wanted to make sure Paul wasn't making all this up. And there were a number of things happened and we saw, uh, which maybe I can talk about later, uh, that that made me think that uh, there was something to what Paul was saying about his house being uh, monitored by something that could very well been extraterrestrial. But uh, that's how we entered his home. Well, we gave us permission
0: to do that. Oh, lost you there for a second. Sorry. Sorry. Right. I think you're back now. Um, well, listen, I appreciate you go. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, great. No worries. No worries. I wasn't sure if we'd frozen or anything. Um, no, again, I appreciate you, you uh, giving us the, the, the lowdown on that. But now the next thing I'd like to speak about is the aviary. Um, so, I've got a few questions before we do. So, can you just give us a breakdown of how that came about? If you don't mind.
1: Well, uh, the Averyry uh, was a special group of people. Now we didn't name it Averyry. We, we, had it. We had this special group of people that met, uh, beginning in the 1980s, early but 1980, actually uh, October, 1980. And we met, uh, I was, uh, brought into it uh, as a, a neophyte. I mean, I was just young uh, intelligence officer, uh, didn't know much about the subject. There were a lot of people that were brought into this uh, group that were uh, seasoned intelligence officers. Um, the leader of our group was Richard Helms, who was a former uh, director of a Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, he wasn't uh, involved uh, directly with the government at that time. And there were a number of other people that were brought in, Kit Green, Dr. Hal Puthoff uh, and, and a number of other people. And, uh, and our job was trying to figure out how we can disclose the subject to the public in a common sense manner that would not, number one, endanger national security release anything that was classified and not upset the public. And so that's what our goal was. We met periodically about every three months or so. Uh, we were quasi-I government. We were supported by the government uh, indirectly. And we uh, reported to the government. And we uh, the government kept track of us of us now <clears throat> bill moore and a guy by the name of uh, jamie shandera learned about the group they they're the, they're the ones that named us bird names
0: right. so
1: the aviary uh we, you know we weren't no know, no know, known as the aviary within our group we were we were just a working group and that and 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 we uh and that's what we did uh sometime in the uh Oh, 84, 85. Uh, I met with Bill Moore, who told me about this group. <laughs> and, and I said, well, uh, he said, you guys have names. And then he, and he that's how the Avery came into existence, as far as the public's knowledge of what the Averary was.
0: Now, I just wondered, if I go through the list of members, you'd be able to give me an indication or an idea of their relation to the UFO subject going into the the formation of the group in the eighties. So, so Richard Helms, you know, what what was his interest, or was he working within the you know with the government on UFOs before the Aviary?
1: Richard Helms was, uh, you know, he came into the agency at the beginning of the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, he was uh, involved in uh, uh, Army intelligence prior to that, and the. Uh, Office of Strategic Intelligence um, and uh, he was a uh, uh, a station chief he, he he worked his way up through the CIA um, he had been briefed on a couple of different programs that the Central Intelligence Agency had that were dealt with the UFOs he didn't ha- he didn't have full access he always told us he had he was 50 he was 50 50 meaning he had 50% knowledge of the subject and 50% not uh, information he wished he had. So he was 50-50, 50 in, 50 out. Anyways, uh, eventually over the years, uh, he became more involved in a program. But of course, uh, he got uh, uh, into to, to the, to the dark side of the program, so to speak, when um, the agency was investigated in the four, in the 70s um, regard of in in regards to assassinations and so forth, uh, and uh, and then eventually he got out of the agency. Uh, he retired, but he uh, maintained contact. And uh, I don't exactly know who uh, selected him as the leader of the Avery but um, when I uh, was. Uh, brought into it uh richard helms was was the uh the the um leader of our of our group uh, and then so we're moving on he, <clears throat> sorry, he on. had he had knowledge of the subject in fact when we were when we were being uh briefed at these meetings he had uh intimate knowledge of of the subject matter so yeah he he knew
0: uh, moving on to Kit Green. What, what were you aware of regarding UFOs and Kit Green in 1980?
1: Uh, well, first of all, Dr. Green and I worked on uh, classified bro- programs together. I, I, know, I knew Kit for a good many years. Uh, Dr. Green, uh, he was a, he's a doctor, a medical doctor, and he was involved with remote viewing uh, uh, with Dr. Putoff back in the uh, 70s and kit green had been briefed into the program on the medical side of it medical knowledge so that was his connection to the Avery.
0: yeah and i suppose um moving on next would be well let's deal with hal putoff then because you mentioned him there so i suppose is that a similar vein to kit green you know uh, sri dia cia that kind of connection
1: yes dr putoff was a uh an, uh he was in the Navy, he was a physicist in the Navy, worked on lasers way back in the 60s. Uh, he eventually went to Sanford, uh, got involved in SDI, the, the remote viewing program, on the scientific side of it, not on the remote viewing side, not on the paranormal side of it. Um, and um, he uh, was one of the chiefs involved in, the, uh, the, in the, uh, setting up the remote viewing program for the military and for the intelligence community and so he uh had knowledge because of of his work uh both in the remote viewing uh the fact that they had remote viewers that were remote viewing uh the moon and mars and spaceships flying around earth so he had knowledge of that uh but i i didn't know everything that that uh, dr putoff was working on back in those days but i know he had knowledge of the subject
0: excellent i've just got a quick question here that's kind of relevant to what we're talking about with regards to kit green he stated he was shown an alien autopsy is are you aware of of a real autopsy video within the intel circles at that time or, or around then
1: yes there there were um uh, there were real uh, autopsies performed and and the um the uh ets that were from the cra- the dead ets from the crash in corona uh there were autopsies done by the armed forces institute of pathology on those beings and then there were other crashes where there were uh dead ets that uh, that there were uh autopsies and every one of those were filmed and um i you know you I don't want to speak for Dr. Green. I wasn't present when these, st- and, and I don't know exactly what he saw, but I'm sure he had access to those.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Um, moving on. What about Bruce Maccabee? What was his connection to the UFO subject?
1: Bruce Maccabee was a uh, optical scientist and um, he had, uh, his access was, uh, more in line with technology uh understanding the, the the technology from uh uh extraterrestrial crafts that was his uh, his knowledge
0: brilliant uh ron Pandolfi
1: ron Pandolfi was within the central he was a CIA uh, officer uh he was in the paranormal sat in a paranormal desk at the CIA and so he had uh, he certainly had knowledge of the of the subject. Uh, he had been briefed into the program and, uh, he had the, uh, he was more or less a representative of some from the CIA on, the on the, in the group.
0: Brilliant. Uh, someone who I don't think many people might not have heard of is Ernie Keller Strauss.
1: Ernie Keller Strauss was a, a um, uh, an air force, uh, scientist, uh, who had, um, knowledge about technical uh uh projects that the government was working on in the reverse engineering program
0: is it right am i right in saying that he'd examined ufo artifacts then in that program yes
1: yes yes he did
0: brilliant uh captain robert collins
1: uh captain robert collins was a um, a scientist air force scientist at the um wright Patterson Air Force Base, and he had had access to uh, some of the artifacts that they had taken off ET crafts uh, that were that were being examined at the Wright Patterson, uh, uh, the Institute for uh, I think the Air Force uh, Institute of, of uh, Technology, and that's where he was, and that's where the uh, the the some of these items were taken, and back in back in forties uh, the only The only place that that uh, was dealing in the subject uh, was at Wright-Patterson Field, Wright Field. And uh, so a lot of these uh, uh, artifacts were taken there. Now, we had Los Alamos National Laboratories, but they were more or less in the nuclear arena, not in the technology arena. Initially, I think most uh, and don't quote me on this, but I think most of the the. Uh, devices that we didn't understand was taken to Wright-Patterson.
0: Right. Lovely. Uh, Dan Smith.
1: Dan Smith was a civilian and he was, um, he was an in-between, a go-between. He was somebody we used to get information from the outside. And that's, I'll just leave it at that.
0: No problem. Am I right saying he was a civilian UFO researcher?
1: Yes, yes, you're correct. Excellent.
0: Um, Colonel John Alexander.
1: Colonel John Alexander was a um, United States Army uh, officer involved in highly classified projects, uh, both within the Army's um, Institute of Advanced Technology and at, uh, at Los Alamos. And so he was involved in a lot of different aspects of the subject of UFOs. Uh, I'll just leave that at that.
0: No problem. And then finally, I've got Commander CB Scott Jones.
1: Scott Jones was a a reserve uh, United States Navy commander. He was an aide to Senator uh, Claiborne Pell uh, of Rhode Island and Senator. Hell was the was um, our uh, connection with the United States Senate and funding. Uh, if we needed something, uh, as far as money or, or, or other things, uh, he could um, satisfy us, uh, satisfy our needs, so to speak, and 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 and. Uh, Scott Jones was uh, Senator Pell's aide, chief uh, chief of staff. Uh, so that's that's how uh, uh, Scott was involved in this. Lovely.
0: And am I right in saying that uh, Harry Reid was somehow in discussions with the group at some point? Was there, there was a connection somewhere with ha- Harry Reid?
1: Harry Reid didn't come any to to, to uh existence within the Avery area until the early 2000s okay yeah they, but he, he uh back in the 80s i'm not really sure i think he was a uh um, a lawyer in nevada at the time or in washington dc but no he wasn't involved until later and but harry reed was the late yeah. harry reed he he was involved in in the subject later on yes yes now l- let me uh let me say that that the names that you gave me are just a few of the names are involved. there's many others that are involved that, that you, you don't have names to and uh, and so uh, and some of some of the other people are uh, were um, uh, temporary members. in fact they came in for a particular reason and then got out uh, so there were 18 total, um, that we had we had uh, brought in and out of the group over the years.
0: Are you able to give us any of those names that I haven't said?
1: No, I'm. I'm uh, and there's a reason that uh, some of them are still involved. Okay. And and and, and a- let me let me just t- say this, and this is about all I can say about it. The Avery still exists. It's still out there. Interesting. Not necessarily with the same people. Okay. Because obviously. Some of them have died over the years and so forth.
0: And this is sanctioned by the government or within military or the intelligence community?
1: Within, I would say within the intelligence community. Interesting. Very interesting.
0: Um, I'm just going to bring this question up here from Sean. So what stopped the Avery Group from disclosing as that was the goal?
1: Well, it was a complicated process. We had to... Number one, we had to, we had to create a plan. I mean, everything within government is done by a plan. I mean, you had to do a written plan and we did, we had a very, very, I thought, and I was a neophyte I was just a young guy. You know, I was, you know, 27, 28 years old. Uh, I, I, I wasn't the senior person, obviously I was a very low person in that group, but I had jobs and things I had to do and I did it. Uh, senior representative in the group uh, they've created a plan, an operational plan on how we should proceed with disclosure and but it was so complicated that you had to get uh, so many different agencies to agree to it now you understand from 1947 uh, when, when the Roswell craft crashed in 1947 the second craft in 1949. But in 1947, we didn't have an Air Force. We had, and we didn't have an intelligence community. We didn't have a CIA. We had the, uh, the Army Air Force. Uh, we had, still had, uh, the Army actually took over the OSS, so their intelligence uh, was coming from the, from the Army. Uh, the National Security Act was passed in September of 1947, the creation of the United States Air Force, and a central intelligence agency. But the CIA never actually got off the ground until 51. I mean, it took some years to form it and so forth. So we had we had to deal with some, some older operational plans that were in place after the Roswell craft crashed. And then in 1960, the DIA came into existence, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And 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 just bear with me on this, okay? I'm giving some historical. In 1969, the United States Air Force wanted to get out of it. The Air Force says, "Listen, we don't want this program. We, the UFO, the Project Blue Book, Project Grudge, Project Sign, the Air Force had. We we wanted to get out of it. So they uh, created this condom report, and it was actually written by the Air Force. I think most people, any kind of common sense. Can, can figure it out that it wasn't done by condom. It was his name stuck to the report. Uh, it, the Air Force wrote it to get out of it. But the Air Force had to find some agency to take it over. The DIA, relatively new agency, 10 years old or 9 years old, raised her hand and said, we'll take it. We got to have something to do. So all this was given over to the DIA. Now, if it would have stayed in the DIA during that time period, um, I think we could have had a disclosure. But what happened was the Navy became involved in this Office of Naval Intelligence. Then the the O, o and I uh, were collect- was collecting information about the subject of UFOs incidents uh, involving Navy, just the Navy, and never sharing it with the DIA, keeping it in house. And of course, the Air Force, 1971, decided. You know, this could be a threat to national security, so we have to keep involved in this. So now the Air Force is involved in it, and they're not sharing their information with the DIA. So now you got all these different agencies involved in this, and now when we become a quasi i entity of the government that wants disclosure, we had to. We have to. Uh, uh, coordinate all this with all these different agencies. Now, again, in 1980 time period, we had the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO. They're involved in it. Uh, They're not sharing with anybody, but certain members of the Air Force because they're getting their funding directly from the Air Force. That was a complicated uh, description of it. And that's why we were not able to fully uh, it, be able to implement our uh, program or operational plan for disclosure. And another problem we had: what, how much disclosure could we give? Now, are we going to give everything to the American public? No, we can't. We're not going to give technical information. You know, all the all the neat things that we um, found out in reverse engineering, we don't want the Russians or the Soviets back in those days or the Red Chinese or any other hostile intelligence or governments to know about what we know about or what we found out. So we couldn't tell them anything technical. What about the religious aspect of it? I think that scared everybody the most. What if we said, okay, you know, yeah, something came here in uh, 1947 and we had a live alien and he told us that he'd been visiting Earth for 2000 years and he was here 2000 years ago. What's the immediately thought, the, the thinking process of somebody that's religious religious? Oh, my God. Did, did, he, did the alien put Jesus on Earth? So that that uh, plant played into our, our, our problem with disclosure.
0: No, fair enough. Um, great question here by Jay Allen, which is also on my list. Is um, what are your thoughts on Bob Lazar's story?
1: Well, I was at Area 51. I was a counterintelligence officer. I think it's you know, there's there's smarter people out there figured that out. Uh, even Phil Class uh, got some records. Anyways, I was a, I was a counterintelligence officer out there. I knew about uh, S two, not S four. Um, the problem with uh, uh, Bob Lazar's story is that S four was under was a fourth level under S two. The complex is called S two. S meaning site, site two. Uh, and S four was a fourth level. Uh, I was at S two a number of times. Uh, that's administrative control uh, operations for at the, the lower levels. I was never at S-4, never was down at S-4, never saw what was down in S-4. I just didn't have a clearance or didn't have a need to know. When Bob, Stor- Bob Lazar's story came out in 1969, uh, I'd uh, 89, um, I checked with one of the chief of securities out there who was very, very, very close to me. I mean, I just left the intelligence community and, and he checked and yeah Bob Lazar did work out there I think it was only for 96 days or 95 something like that 98 days or something that something like that he did work out there uh he did that he did have access to s4 but that's the only thing I can say I don't know anything else about what he saw uh or what he did down there
0: That's great. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to move on to a few questions I've got here from uh, sent in by different followers on social media. So first of all, Yorne asks, why has the military, or whoever did, fake alien abductions? What was the point of doing that?
1: Uh, Probably my weakest area um, is is abductions. Uh, I know we investigated them. I investigated some abductions. Um, I don't know about any actual United States government abductions.
0: So no my labs or anything like that.
1: Um, there were there, uh, let me say this. There were, uh, some specific operations that occurred to protect, uh, other projects. We had, and I'll give you an example, okay? There was an Air Force uh, major who had access to a a program and uh, highly classified. And he started to uh, disclose it to somebody that shouldn't know about it. So we faked an abduction of the person that he was uh, giving the information to to throw her it was a female throw her off that's the only that's the only uh fake abduction that i ever knew about within the within the, the government now there may have been others you gotta understand there's other agencies working this the 7602nd air intelligence squadron at, uh, or at uh, Fort Belvoir, Virginia, uh, the real, real men in black did some things that I never had access to. So it could have happened, but I only knew of one instance and I told you that.
0: Great, thank you very much. Uh, it's a question from Dave Partridge. On Fade to Black a couple of years ago, you mentioned that there were two disinformation agents that you knew of active within the UFO community one that's been around for years and one younger in comparison. Are you able to disclose who they were or are?
1: No, I think they did. (laughs) I think they disclosed themselves. Yeah. UFO convention some years ago. uh, One particular one sat in a room and, and said that he had been uh, um, co-opted by a particular person, uh, intelligence officer, not me. He named it. He named (laughs) that intelligence officer. And, uh, Uh, Well, the other one, I think everybody knows Bill Moore. I mean, right? Okay. Yeah, Bill Moore was the other one. So the 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 younger one, uh, you know, I'm not going. If he wants, he'd already disclosed his name. Uh, I can't remember what UFO convention that was. Twenty oh six or seven, sometime in there. And then, of course, Bill Moore. We don't. We know Bill Moore was the other one of the others.
0: Okay, that's great. Now that's something we can look into. Appreciate it. Did you play? This is from uh, Matthew Ilsey, Did you play any part in the creation or dissemination of any materials related to Majestic Twelve?
1: No, absolutely not. I think I was clear to that in nineteen sixty, uh, and nineteen eighty-seven and eighty-nine. Uh, FBI investigated it, uh, and 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 the uh, the MJ Twelve documents contained about. Um, 70% factual information and the other 30%. Uh, well, I shouldn't say 30, 20 percent was maybe speculation and 10% was outright uh, lies, <laughs> false information. But it wasn't it was created by the government. Uh, I think you know this has been out there a long time. People don't want to believe it. People want to believe that the MJ twelve document was created by me or Bill Moore or Jamie Shandera or uh, Carl Dale, I mean, all these names were involved in in creating these documents Uh, and and none of it's factual. You know, they write a book and it has to sound good so they throw my name in there and others, but the the, the documents were created for a reason. And uh, it was, you know, I was not involved in that. There were hundreds and hundreds of other people involved in this program besides me. And so other people and, and the agency, the, the entity that created that document, I think, uh, Wendell Stevens, and most people know who Wendell Stevens is. He had some really neat documents that uh, suggested this, the uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency Special Means Committee uh, actually created that document. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the truth. And you want to believe it, you believe it. You don't want to believe it. You don't have to believe it.
0: No, fair enough. Um, a question from Jay Allen here. Uh, Is there an influence operation, Men in Black, to keep people quiet? Is this a shadow game parallel to an actual alien MIB operation?
1: Well, <clears throat> there's an entity called, uh, or there's an organization back in those days called the 7602nd Air Intelligence uh, wing detachment twenty-two detachment twenty-two contained some very strange people. They were uh people that could speak different languages, uh they're people that looked differently, had different facial appearances. Some say they had plastic surgery. I don't know about that. I've I've never heard that anybody at purposely had their face uh, uh manipulated in a way but and some of them were ex, uh, safe crackers actors actresses there's men women uh there's all different races involved in this uh african americans uh hispanic and they're assigned to this particular detachment and their job is to collect intelligence deep cover intelligence operations and one one of their jobs is the men in black stories. I know I met them. I met some of these people. Uh, They uh, visited witnesses after I did. Uh, So yes, the government does have people, they don't call themselves men in black, but uh, they're out there for a particular reason. Most uh, most, uh, uh, of what they do are really highly classified, super secret stuff that uh, they penetrate foreign governments And it doesn't always it doesn't necessarily pertain to UFOs, any kind of intelligence. Uh, But but there is a there is a uh, 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 an organization that uh, people could could go back and claim to be the men in black, the the real men in black.
0: Yeah, great. Um, The next question I've actually got a few times was regarding some documents that you showed to Linda Moulton Howe. now I'm assuming it's to do with DNA manipulation. So manipulated sixty-five times in order to create Homo Sapiens sapiens. Is that were they true documents? Was that not true? Was it disinformation? Like, can you tell us about those documents?
1: <clears throat> the Linda Howell case. Uh, I was given a task. Now, everything I did was sanctioned by the government. Obviously, or I would, you know, be in jail someplace. Uh, I was. At, I was tasked with contacting Linda Howell. Uh, because she was a really good researcher, and she had contacts within the government that we were worried about. And my job was to meet up with her, uh, get to know her, try to recruit her, number one, and then try to uh, find out who her sources were within Washington, DC. So I contacted her, I brought her out to the base, I brought her into a very, very secure area. I set her in a particular location where she could be filmed through a one-way mirror. She she describes this probably better than I do. And I showed her some documents that I had gotten that morning from an armed forces courier, a highly classified document. Armed forces courier service, only transports highly classified, has to be above, top secret above. Uh, I got it into my office. I looked at, I opened it with my supervisor present because we both had to sign. And I was to show her those documents. So, and I did that. She came in, she sat down, everything was recorded. I had other people looking in. I gave her the document. I said, you can, you can look at this document. You can read this document. You can't take notes. You can't photograph. As soon as you're done reading it, it goes back in the." The safe folder. And the safe folder is a, as is a, is a, a safe uh, folder that will, um, uh, that you put a document in, and if you, if you close it in a certain way, if you try to open it in a certain way, there's small thermite uh, uh, strips that burns the document. So, uh, and I had to send it back. So what she read was what I was, to, what I was given to tell her to read, showed her. So now you're asking me, is everything in that document real? You'd have to go back and ask the government that because sure. I don't know. I I, I I read it. It was a thick document and had uh, the complete history of U.S. involvement, including uh, the DNA uh, studies. It was very few people ever had access to that stuff. Um, and so what she read uh I would I would assume was factual, at least most of it. And after she was uh, finished reading it, put it back in a the container. Uh, then I, I, took, I she asked me a lot of questions I couldn't answer, and then I took her took her back uh, off off the base. Now I maintained contact with Linda Howell for years, but I we could never recruit her as a as an asset. She's just too smart. She knew what we were trying to do. She didn't want to tell us sources, and so uh, we just left it at that. And oh, we we never bugged, we never bugged her car. I mean, I heard, I read this uh, a few months ago, or back in November, that we allegedly planted devices in her home, and I, we never did any of that. That's absolutely false.
0: brilliant uh jefferson lee asks what aerospace corporations do you know that are hiding advanced physics or advanced materials that are allegedly not of human origins
1: uh that's a that's a it's a loaded question the um one of the ways the government united states government hides information is through the contractors um I worked for Dr. Putoff in the Institute for Advanced Studies at Austin. He had DARPA contracts. And I saw it firsthand there. That's all. I'll just say that. Because I, I can't talk about what I did with, with Dr. Putoff because it's, it's proprietary uh, in its information. So I'm not going to talk talk about it with exception that the government hides highly classified reverse engineering uh, projects within contractors because contractors uh, are not subject to FOIA under title 5 United States code they're exempt so I would look at esystems uh, skunk works um, tectronics corporation there's just a few that I would look at
0: brilliant that's something for people to go on um a question here from instavern could you please ask him about deceptive indication or warnings projects or expand on what you know about FICE, false INW programs? So I guess false flags, if, if anything.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, they occur within the intelligence community. Uh, we sometimes, we used to use uh, the Canadian secret service uh, to mask some things. A uh, complicated uh, false flag is um, uh, using other people's identity to, uh, to get information, not connecting it back to the originating agency. Uh, that, that's about all I can say about it, because a lot of those things are still uh, pretty classified. That's
0: great. Thank you. Now, one final question before we end is you mentioned recently in in, in a recent interview that you're actually forming a new group. Is that something that you can expand on a bit or at least tell us what the what you what the intentions are?
1: Well, we have we have a group. We've had a group uh, of retired intelligence officers. Uh, We've had I've been a member for years and we're trying to. Work with some other some other entities uh, for a disclosure, but again, we have a it's 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 a very 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 complicated situation. Uh, we, we number one, we have to be very careful that we don't disclose any classified information because we're going to be end up being prosecuted in court. Uh, number two, uh, we can't uh, identify anyone within the intelligence community that is working on these projects because there's a law uh, that, that says you can't disclose an undercover person, an intelligence officer. So you, you can't do that. And we don't want to do that. So um, we're trying to work with Congress. Uh, people like, well, Harry Reid was one, but of course he died. Uh, Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio. Uh, there's a number of different uh, um, senators and congressmen, both on both sides of the aisle, both Democrats and Republicans that we're working with trying to get some legislation passed that could protect people uh, from disclosing certain things about the subject. And before we ever uh, disclose what we want to disclose or start a really, really successful disclosure program, we want some laws on our side and and that's what we we have to do first
0: i appreciate that so much and rick thank you so much we are out of time but i really really say uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, and answering the questions um uh, it's been great i really appreciate it so uh yeah thank you so much
1: you're very welcome welcome. take
0: care thank you so much you're welcome bye-bye Well, guys, thank you so much to everybody here live watching. Uh, I really appreciated all the input, the questions uh, for keeping it nice and mature in the chat. We'll be back next week. But for all details on upcoming shows, you can follow me over on Instagram and on Twitter. All the details are below. But for now, guys, thank you so much. I hope you all have a good rest of your day and I'll see you soon. Take care.